to the Bear Wozniak Adventure. Kickstart that engine and roll thunder with the pack. Explore the grittiness of masculine spirituality. Gain traction in the virtues. And soup up your spiritual engine by turning adversity into adventure. Now, here's Bear Wozniak. Let's ride. Aloha and welcome to the Bear Wozniak Adventure. I'm your adventure guide, Bear Wozniak. This is the show you go to. to uh, this is the show for all you misfits out there that don't seem to fit in uh, in the world, don't seem to fit in in the church. You know, it's just kind of a place for all you you guys that are just kind of uh, just just guys. You know, I, you know what it reminds me of is the cave of Adullam uh, that King David had when he was running from King Saul. He hid in this cave and. Uh, all of the misfits showed up. The guys who, you know, didn't seem to fit in, seemed a little bit contrary, and people that owed money, they all showed up and they hung out with King David, and that became the beginning of his great army. Uh, you know that uh, that eventually, you know, that was the core. And so, if you're a guy and you're listening to the show, you're driving down the highway in a black pickup truck someplace, you're the guy we want to reach here. We know that if this show is gritty enough for you, then everyone's going to love it. So. Uh, we always have really great guests on our show. You can see right behind me the man cave uh, sign. Uh, the cave. I think of the cave of Adullam. I think of uh, Plato's cave. I think of the, the ancient caves G.K. Chesterton talked about. I think about the cave Jesus died and was buried in and then rose again from. I think of the cave of the nativity. So welcome to the man cave. Welcome to the Bear Wozniak adventure. And today I have as my guest, I get to talk to the coolest people because I have a radio show. People who would never want to talk to the likes of me will come on my show. Steve Weidenkopf. I've got two of his books here. I take the covers off because I ruin them while I'm reading them. So I just read these two books, The Glory of the Crusades and The Glory of the Crusades and the um, History, the real story of the Catholic history. Steve, welcome to our show, brother. Thanks, Barry. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad to be here. He's too smart for me to talk to you guys. He's a professor of church history at Christendom College. Did I get it right? In the master's program, graduate. You, yeah, the graduate school in Alexandria, Virginia. And if you guys could see him, those of you listening on the radio could see him, there's like walls of books on either side of him. He's basically, what happens if, if you were in California and there was an earthquake, you'd just be buried in it, I think. so. Buried in books. That's not, not a bad way to go, though. I know. I love my books. But my, my challenge is I have this stack of books that I, I've, I've yet to read, you know? Yeah. And then you store the books that you've read. And the stack of books that I'm going to read just gets, it's a whole shelf now of books I haven't yeah. read yet. Is that like you? How many of those books behind you have oh, yeah. you actually read? Tell me. There's probably thousands of them there. Oh, yeah. The, I mean, the vast majority of them that I have, I have read. Yeah. Um, you know, or at least used in some way, shape, or form or other. But yeah, just like you, I have an entire stack. It's, it's on my desk here it's behind the computer, so you can't see it. But I have a whole stack of books that's in the to-read queue, so to speak. And uh, uh, there's, you know, there's there's never enough. Uh, there's always, there's too many books and not enough time, basically. I know. Praise God. for. And, you know, look, check it out. So I have this little thing on the inside of the cover of your book the, from the Bear Wozniak Library, right? And it's got like the date I receive it and then the date read. So I know, okay, this one's done. I can put that on the finished stack. But, oh, nice. but your two books, especially your new one, The Real Story of Catholic History, it's kind of like debunking the fake news about the Catholic Church, right? 
Exactly right. Yeah, that's that's the whole point uh, of the book is uh, is to take some of these common anti-Catholic historical myths that people hear about, uh, either from friends, family members, you know, coworkers, whatnot, or just even you know watching TV, watching the you know the so-called History Channel, whatnot. And you you get these different uh, myths that pop up all the time. And I wanted to give Catholics a tool, a resource that they could use to be able to uh, you know know that these are myths. First of all, be able to refute them uh, easily. I mean, it's 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 fake news. I mean, ba- exactly. basically, it's and, and a lot of it came out of the Protestant Reformation and the Enlightenment era, um, and, and and you know why is it that I love history? It seems like you know, like what what was it? Uh, Cardinal Newman said about knowing history. You want to give me that quote? Yeah, Newman said that to to know history is to cease to be Protestant. Now, was that Cardinal Newman that said that? It or was, John, yeah, John Henry Cardinal John Henry Newman? Yeah, yeah. yeah. To, to know history is to cease to be Protestant. I just, in my morning catechism today, uh, you know, we read from that big, thick book, but we also uh, read from, uh, I, I read from them the Didache today, mm-hmm. one page from the Didache. So to know, so to know, um, uh, to read that and then see this, this the beautiful kind of like growth of, of that seed into the catechism we have today, you know, it's, it's beautiful. But, you know, the thing is, is if you know history, it's just interesting how Jesus shows up at the point of the bell curve of the Roman Empire. At the moment when, you know, there was still, when, when the, the, the world was united, that area was united by roads and by basically the Pax Romana, you could deliver the gospel everywhere. You didn't have to go through warring nation states to get the gospel out, you know? Just that whole concept of the Roman Empire and and the Catholic Church and all that, it's kind of like there's this common history for a season. So what is it? Why do we love history so much? Yeah, well, you know, I, I mean, I love history because it's, you know, it's, it's really, it's, it's the narrative of, of a people. I mean, that's really what history is. History is the telling of a nation or a people's, or in this case, in our case, the church's story. Um, it's really our family history. I mean, when I teach history, that's, that's kind of the first uh, point that I try to make to people is because, you know, a lot of people have this very negative view of history bear. I mean, many people think that, that history is just kind of this, you know, boring recitation of names and dates that- and events and it has no real meaning in their lives, right? That's what they made us do in, in high school. I mean, I'd fall asleep during yeah. history class until they got to the Vikings. I like that one. Yeah, you know? exactly. But I mean, uh, yeah, it was so boring. But man, the grittiness of it when you really get down to it. Right. And, you know, and it's, it's how it's really, you know, how you teach history. I mean, you know, your experience you just mentioned there is probably very common to most people you know, uh, in terms of how they've learned history, either in high school or college. Uh, but if you have a really good teacher or a teacher who knows what they're doing and loves the subject in particular uh, and teaches it with a passion and teaches it as an Right, as a story, because that's really what this is. When we study church history, we're studying the actions of the men and women who've come before us, our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that's just like learning our family history, where we come from, you know, where our family came from, when they came to this country, that kind of thing. Um, knowing that gives us a sense of identity, and having that identity then as Catholics then helps us grow deeper, I believe, in, in our relationship with the Lord and with his church. Dude, you know, it's gnarly. Because uh, we can go back 2,000 years and watch our brothers and sisters, you know, the, the martyrs, the saints. And being in Rome last month, you know, when you walk down in Peter Square and you see the colonnade and the, the, the saints, the great cloud of witnesses, and then you look up and you see these gnarly-looking apostles, you know, like, I'm not saying that to be a man you have to look tough and gritty like these guys did. We want a tough and gritty soul. But these guys are looking down at you like, so what took you so long, dude? Let's get to work. You know, like a real look of determination on their in their, their gritty guys. I mean, I, I stayed uh, 
Like from here, I, I stayed just a few hundred yards away from where Barnabas, you know, is reposed right now, who I love. That's the icon I have behind me is, is a Barnabas, the man, the man of sort of encouragement, the great evangelist. You know, those guys walked, my, you know, they, 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 they were shipwrecked. They were, they were stoned and not killed. They're most, all of them, most of them were martyred. These are tough guys, and we should, we should go back and study their lives and how they lived and the impact that they had because it's a challenge to us today. We should have even a greater impact from them than then because we have more time on our hands, frankly. We should be evangelizing yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, and they were just, you know, just to kind of pick up on that. I mean, they, they were ordinary men, right? In terms of, I mean, these were not scholars of the law. These were not the, you know, high religious authorities of the day. These, these were, these were just, you know, average men, right? Men who were working for their families, you know, for themselves or whatnot. And, and this is who, you know, Jesus came and picked these men, right? These ordinary men who did extraordinary things because of their belief in Christ, their relationship with him and the grace that he gave to them, especially the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And they were able to go out and, you know, as you mentioned, like traveling, uh, you know, by walking on boats, uh, they were able to evangelize, uh, you know, the, the Roman Empire. I mean, the, the world's greatest superpower, political power, military power at the time. From England uh, to India to Africa, yeah. you know. Amazing, you know, yeah. and within three, you know, within four hundred years of you know their their uh, their the beginning of that mission of theirs, you know, that entire um, government was was converted. It's amazing. There, you know, going from a great persecution. Who was the eastern the eastern emperor again? Who, who had that last great horrible persecution, and then boom, Constantine flips it on its head. Who was that emperor? Yeah, that was Diocletian. Yeah, the Diocletian, Diocletian, the worst. And then Constantine, you know, shows up and the within a within a I think a few months, basically, of him being emperor. Uh, I mean, going into um, Rome, the Milan, the Edict of Milan, right? I right. mean, making uh, Christianity legal. Yes. And you just yeah. go through, that. and th and then you see the fall of the Roman Empire. You see it gradually collapsing in on itself, and the rise of the of the nations and the different kingdoms. But what was left standing was the Catholic Church. Was am, am I right about that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, when the when the Western, at least the the Roman Empire in the Western half of of the empire fell in the late fifth century, and uh, yeah, what was left there was you know, all kind of all power really devolved down to uh, these local regional jurisdictions, which were controlled by you know military Roman military commanders of of ethnic German origin, and you know they uh, so but they were disparate, right? There was no longer any kind of organized or or uh, international, so to speak. Uh, institution like there was with the empire, at least again in the West. In the eastern part of the world, the empire continues up into the 15th century when it's it's destroyed by, by Islam. But uh, in the West, you have the church, right? It's the Catholic Church is the only institution that, that kind of steps into that political void and that political vacuum and uh, maintains, sustains, and, and continues a Western civilization. And develops it. Right. I mean, one, exactly. of, one of the great myths is, you know, the, the so-called Dark Ages— we're going to take a break here in a couple minutes. Can you, like, debunk that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you want me to do that now or after yeah, the break? Yeah, give us your two-minute version of it, not the whole semester. Yeah, so, so the, the two-minute version is, yeah, the Dark Ages are no such thing. It's, it's a pejorative term. Uh, the time period, you know, before, right before the Middle Ages, right after the fall of, of Rome or the collapse of Rome in the 5th century, up until about the year 1000, was really a time of great technological innovation, uh, militarily speaking, economically as well in the West. Um, and it's just a pejorative term that, that, that previous historians used to kind of fast-forward to the Middle Ages and then even fast-forward then into the Renaissance where they thought was the real real things that happened. Well, a lot of historians 
historians refer to it in a different way now? What do they? How do they refer to that period of time now? Yeah, it's. I mean, m most of it is usually referred to as like the early Middle Ages, or, or mm -hmm. you know, the, just the time right before the Middle Ages. So we don't use Dark Ages anymore. At least no self-respecting historian does. It's just a, it's a, it's a again a pejorative term that does not accurately and, and, and capture. Who, who used that? Who who developed that pejorative term? How did that come into into play? The Enlightenment, or, or yeah, it was enlightened authors and you know, and others after them that you know, and, and so it's it's there's you know, different historians try to come up with different time periods, and, and time periods, you know, in a certain sense are arbitrary. Right. They're just they're just easy ways for us to kind of understand our history. Right. Uh, but yeah, it really grew out of the Enlightenment, uh, which it was basically it was anti-Christian, anti-God. Yes. Exactly. And so it was a pejorative term to try to you know, but the reality is, we're going to take a break here in a minute. The reality is, if it were not for the Catholic Church and the monks. The Irish monks or the other monks copying these great texts, whether it was, um, you know, whether it was, you know, the, the fathers or the Bible or uh, philosophers, uh, whether they were Christian or not, we'd have lost all that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So, um, yeah. And so if it weren't for the Catholic Church, I'd have been gone. Uh, there's, there's, there's this misnomer that it was the Muslims that carried that, carried that uh, forward, but a lot of those great thinkers of the Muslim, not Muslims were actually uh, Jewish people and, uh, you know, Christians that Christians. were given Muslim names uh, for the work. Hey, we're talking with Steve Weidenkopf. I'm so proud. Am I, am I saying your name right? You are, actually. Yep, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I'm so proud I can say your name, dude. <laughs> so, uh, it's that nice, easy Italian name. No, I'm just <laughs> uh, so uh, he's, a, he's a professor of church history. At, uh, at Christendom College, and I just love William Carroll and his books. The founder, uh, of course, passed on now. We'll be right back with more of the Bear Wozniak Adventure. Go to bearwozniak.com and get your free stuff. Bear will send you the audio of his fiery call to the wall talk, challenging men to step into the breach and rebuild the walls of the home, the church, and our society. You get a free ebook of it too. Go to bearwasnick.com and click on Get My Free Stuff.
Deep Virtue with Bear Wozniak. Aloha, this is Bear Wozniak with DeepAdventure.com with Deep Virtue number 84. You know, I'm, I'm a private pilot. I mean, I can't believe that they let me fly a plane. I'm not that really good at it. But I have my license. The FAA lets me fly around Hawaii. And uh, when I was first learning, in one of the very first lessons, probably in the first six or seven or ten lessons, they take you up in this single-engine Cessna, and we're flying at about, oh, maybe uh, 7,000 feet. And they say, now pull up the pull up on the um, airplane and, and just basically go as fast and at a very steep angle. When you do that, eventually you run out of wind speed. And you hear this terrible sound, this kind of ringing siren kind of goes off, a warning signal. And then all of a sudden, the nose of the plane just drops and you're heading straight towards Earth. You're going into a stall. And the only way to get out of that stall is just to accelerate downwards until you get enough airspeed that you can uh, get some loft again under the wings and pull up. I think that happens a lot to us in our, in, our, in our lives. Where we're an airplane, we're meant to fly. We're meant to soar. We're meant to use the, you know, the, the, the loft, uh, the aerodynamic loft that being a Christian gives us. But we get too prideful. We get our nose in the air. Uh, we put all of our energy into something and our nose gets up in the air and we are just thinking we're going to do this all on our own effort. And we do that, eventually there comes a fall. Pride comes before the fall. And then no matter how much we try, no matter how much we do, the airplane stalls and we start to basically crash. We're going down. We're going down fast. The key is to put your nose down. The key is to sink your nose down and get humble before the Lord. And the Lord will give you a wind beneath your wings again. So stay humble before the Lord. Your plane is meant to fly. You stay in right relationship with him. He'll, God will give you the glide, the glide path. This is Bear Wozniak from DeepAdventure.com with Deep Virtue number 84. Deep Virtue with Bear Wozniak. Find out more at DeepAdventure.com. This is a warning. The Bear Wozniak adventure is dangerous. The radical change Bear challenges you to is not for wimps. Change this station to a soft rock station before it's too late. You've been warned. Now, here is Bear Wozniak. Aloha and welcome back to the Bear Wozniak Adventure. I'm your adventure guide, Bear Wozniak. We have my co-adventure guy today is Steve Weidenkopf. He is a he is a he loves history, so he said, why not make a career out of it? He's the professor of church history at uh, Christendom College in Alexandria, Virginia. And I just love William Carroll. I don't know how anybody could know so much about history. And you read through the, I don't know, how many volumes is his book, Stephen? Is it like seven, eight, or nine? How many are there? Yeah, yeah. So, Bear, it's actually Warren Carroll, not William Warren, Carroll. Just Warren to, Carroll, yeah. thank you. Uh, you're welcome. But yeah, Warren, so Warren founded the college that uh, I teach at. It's our 40th anniversary this year. And, and he actually has six of these humongously large uh, history of Christendom uh, books. And uh, each one is is at least, you know, seven, eight hundred pages with extensive footnotes and source material. And it took him, obviously, he and his wife, Anne, both worked on the project. It took him, it took him years to finish it, but they're just a treasure trove De- of Decades. Information. I mean, yeah. I don't know how, you know, I'm an author and it, it's writing, you know, is such hard yeah. work. It is. Rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. And that's so cool. That's cool when it's basically come from inspiration. But when you're having to be historically correct with every little detail and have the the, the, the source material to back it up, uh, amazing book. I'm, I'm reading his books at the same time I'm writing reading a book on the called The Primitive Church and another one on the history and development of church doctrine through history, doctrine and dogma. I kind of read that historical time and then reread it from the other book and reread it from the other book. And... Uh, uh, it's just mind blowing. So to be for you to be a professor of church history, 
at Christendom College makes you kind of like the man, I would say. <laughs> well, thank you. It's, it's a lot of you know, a lot of time, a lot of research, a lot of effort into it. But as, as I mentioned earlier, and as you pointed out, it's a passion, and, and I love it a lot. So I'm very, very, very blessed. You can tell it in your writing. And this book here, thank too, you. that this recent one, am I going to have to put my glasses on to read it, or are you going to tell us the title? Yeah, it's the real story of Catholic history. So it's not the fake news. It's not fake news. Yeah. And in, it's all—it's really like an apologetic to some extent. Um, what it, what it, what are the um, give it? What are the th some of the real things that really get in your gut when you hear people uh, speaking uh, some of these false myths? Give us a few of the highlights of some. Give us one of them that really stand out to you. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it's, it's. I mean, just to, to to back up for a minute, you know, the book is is. Uh, I wrote it in, and put it into different sections. So the the myths in the book, uh, for those who haven't seen it yet, are you know they they're kind of linear. So they start in the early church and go all the way to the modern world. And then I have a a section called the mixed bag at the end with just a bunch of different myths that people are uh, usually hear. Um, I mean, for me, you know, I'm a, I'm a specialist in the Crusades. That's kind of my uh, particular emphasis and focus, as you point out. I, I wrote a book on that. It was published a couple of years ago. Uh, so for me, like the you know the the myths about the Crusades really bother me um, because you see it all the time. It's it's you know it's all in the media. It's it's you know in print media as well as uh, is on uh, TV. And well, whatnot. look what, look what Bill Clinton said about it when his speech. Yeah. What what did he say? And how do you refute this ridiculous statement? Yeah, he was, was his speech as you meant, as you referred to was was given a couple of months after the, the September 11th 2001 attacks and he gave it at Georgetown University. And there he said the reason why we were attacked on September 11th is because of the so-called massacre of Jerusalem after the first crusade in 1099. Um, and so he attributes that that crusade or that that mis massacre is is kind of the the event that's still felt in the in the you know Islamic world and so they're angry about it so you know Almost a thousand years well, later. Well, but, but there was somebody. there was this horrible. There was blood up to the bridle, up to the knees. There flowing for sixteen hundred stadia. It's written. It's a document. Yeah. Can you uh, explain what hyperbole means in the reference to revelations that that uh, inferred? And I mean, how could there be blood that thick? For, how far is sixteen hundred? Is it sixteen hundred stadia? Do I have the right the right number? Something like that. Yeah, I don't think I don't think it was sixteen stadia. Maybe I don't think it was sixteen hundred. But yeah, it's. Uh, okay. it's a smaller number, but yeah, I mean, it's it's you know what that means is what they what they were writing. So yeah, I mean to back up. So yeah, there was this uh, after the the Crusaders got into the city of Jerusalem in 1099 and were able to liberate it from Islamic control. There was you know obviously killing and and, and rampage and and whatnot that happened as part of warfare. I mean it was standard tactics in medieval warfare, both on the Islamic side and, and Christian side, that if, if you went to a city you with an army, you camped outside the city, you demanded its surrender. If the city refused to surrender, um, then and you were able to take the city as the attacker, then once you got into the city, pretty much there were no holds barred. You were able to do whatever you wanted to in the city. And again, there's plenty of examples on both sides to, to illustrate that that was kind of standard practice. Um, so we have to understand it first in the historical context. But to, to think somehow that you know the Crusaders went into the city and and they killed every single man, woman, and child in the city, uh, as as the alleged massacre myth uh, uh, purports. It's just not true. That's not what happened. Many people were killed. That is verifiable historical fact. But there wasn't like everybody uh, in the city. Number one. Number two. The whole documents, as you mentioned, the contemporary accounts, chronicles that were written by those who were actually on crusade. Uh, you know, say that you know we came into the city and you know there was great destruction and, and massacre and, and slaughter and. And so much so, as you mentioned, that the you know blood up to the, the the bridle of our horses or up to our knees in different accounts uh, was the result, and and that was obviously not a a literal. It should not be taken as a literal amount of blood. I mean, it would be impossible.
impossible. <laughs> right. It's physically not even, impossible. Not even close. You couldn't even be right. close to that. Yeah. Physically impossible to do that. But but we in the modern world have a difficult time when we read those kinds of texts because if from our modern perspective, you know, we're used to CNN or Fox News or somebody being embedded into military units and giving us, you know, a detailed blow by blow, minute by minute kind of account of what happens in these in these in the combat situation uh, and in these different wars. But the medieval world, the medieval mind was very different. The medieval mind was very steeped in the faith, very steeped in scripture. And so you know, a medieval person who hears an account of, you know, our forces got into Jerusalem and there was blood up to the, to the bridle of our horses, they would immediately recognize that that's, a, that's a, a reference to the book of Revelation where God sends forth, you know, the four, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse to go and to, to have judgment uh, on the earth. And, and there's a reference in the book of Revelation, I think it's chapter 12, where there's blood that rises up to, you know, the bridle of the, the horsemen's, uh, of the horse of the, of the horsemen of the apocalypse. So that's that's a it's a it's a scriptural reference which really imparts the notion of judgment, that God's judgment. So what what that meant for the contemporaries is that when the Crusaders got into Jerusalem, that for them was God's uh, because they were victorious. That was God's judgment on the forces of Islam, and that's why the Crusaders were able to liberate the city. And that's how a medieval person would understand that. But passage. there there were uh, how many people do you estimate uh, were killed in that city when when we took Jerusalem? Yeah, Sever, the best, several I mean, thousand. Yeah, several thousand. The best estimate, anywhere from two to three thousand people. And, and the problem is, when you took a city like that, when you're involved in war, you don't have the luxury of having a gitmo or something like that, a prison, to keep them. If, if a lot of the times in the Roman times, if you took over a, a, an army, they would join your army, but right. that wasn't going to be the case with Islam because Islam is all about the jihad. You know, you can't uh, change your your allegiance isn't just to a man, but it would be an allegiance to to the god that you serve. But then what happened uh, later on when, the, when Jerusalem... Now, so we didn't come in there to attack Jerusalem. We came to liberate it. And Correct. that was the purpose of the Crusades, is that, that, air, that, that pilgrimage, uh, people were being, uh, being killed by robbers, by thieves, and, and all that land had been taken over. The whole, the whole concept of the Muslim world is there's those people that are Muslim and those people that are at war. The two worlds, or how, does that, how is that... I, yeah, you're right. I mean, you're, so the Muslim kind of viewpoint, the worldview that was established by Muhammad is is to see the world in two different camps, basically. They call them uh, the Dar al-Islam or the House of Islam and then the Dar al-Harb, which is the House of War. So you have – and so basically what that means is that you're either in the House of Islam, you're either a believer of Mo, you know, Allah and Muhammad is the prophet and you're a member of the community of, of Muslim believers or you're in this this other group called the House of War and it's the job you know, or the, the – uh, the kind of mission, so to speak, of those in the House of Islam to bring those in the House of War into the House of Islam. Okay, uh, we got it. Jihad. Through jihad, we got to come right back. And, and you know, the sultans there, they would say, you know, every one of their like sub uh, generals or whatever, they were, they were expected to take over one more nation every, uh, every, um, um, during their reign. Uh, this is Bear Wozniak with a Bear Wozniak adventure. We're talking with Steve Weidenkopf. The uh, church historian, he's a professor at Christendom College. If he's the professor of history there in the graduates program, you know he's kind of a smart guy. We'll be right back with more of the Bear Wozniak adventure.
This is a warning. The Bear Wozniak adventure is dangerous. The radical change Bear challenges you to is not for wimps. Change this station to a soft rock station before it's too late. You've been warned. Now, here is Bear Wozniak. Aloha and welcome back to the Bear Wozniak adventure. I'm your adventure guide, Bear Wozniak. We have our guest today, uh, Steve Weidenkopf. Is it Dr. Steve Weidenkopf, or how are we supposed to call you? Professor? What should we call no, you? No, just, yeah, just Professor. I don't, I don't have my doctorate yet, Okay, so we're gonna, God willing, one day. But. Okay, we'll call you Professor. The yes. Professor is in the house. Hey, before <laughs> we get started with Steve, I just want to remind you guys about the Bears Man Cave. It's, I think it's uh, the Catholic—oh, by the way, I want to stand up and show you. I'm wearing the Catholic Man Show shirt today. You see that? Those of you that are watching on Facebook, not, not you that are listening on radio— a shout-out to Adam and David over there, the Catholic Man Show over there in Oklahoma. Love those guys. Um, but we have something. They kind of inspired it a little bit for me. We have something called the Bears Man Cave, and people can go to our website. We simplified it because no one can remember the name of our ministry, Deep Adventure. So it's just bearwasnick.com will take you to our ministry website. And if you're a man, you can click on Join the Man Cave, Bears Man Cave. We give you access to our private Facebook group. And it's just the coolest thing. Steven, if you could see it, we got guys there that look like ZZ Top, dude. And we got, a, we got people from France and the Philippines. We got all kinds of bikers. We got such a Mitch ba- mixed bag of misfits, you know. And, uh, and uh, we will challenge each other, encourage each other. We'll quote John Wayne. We'll quote John Paul II. And every two or three weeks, we could get together for a video uh, hangout. You know, we call it a meetup, the Bears Man Cave meetup. So uh, if you guys... Uh, if you guys uh, really want to get fired up, go to bearwasnick.com and join the Man Cave. And also there, remember, our ministry is supported by you guys. And to do this radio show, to do the, to do the morning catechism, to shoot Long Ride Home reality TV show, it's very expensive. And so we appreciate uh, your donations. And also, you can become a monthly donor. You can also go to our website. We got cool stuff there. My books, we got uh, Bears Man Cave cigars. The Seven Virtue Cigar Samplers, which we selected ourselves, designed ourselves, uh, shirts, all kinds of stuff like that. So anything you can do to help us, especially during this Christmas season, remember us. We really would appreciate it. Uh, so um, anyway, so much for the commercial. Stephen, uh, professor, the professor's in the house. Where's Ginger and Marianne? Are they? <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're upstairs. Yeah. <laughs> they're okay. <laughs> a- anyways, we got Professor Stephen Weidenkopf. He is the professor for church history in the graduate program at um, Christendom College, Warren uh, Carroll, the founder, president, is mind-blowing. If you're teaching there, uh, it's amazing, because his whole series of books are just uh, just incredible on the history of the church. And, uh, and he's written two great books, one on the glory of the Crusades and one about um, the, the real history of the, of, of the real story of Catholic history that just came out. This is uh, this other one on the Crusades. I've got a lot of people reading your books. So we were talking about, let, let's take this, let's take this, this whole concept, this fake news about, the, about jihad. If, you're, are, if you are um, a Muslim, they say they will tolerate non-Christians, I mean non-Muslims, to live with them. But what they mean by that is you pay an extra tax. You're probably not going to be able to enter, in, if I'm not enter into contracts. You're, you're going to be, you're... Um, you're going to be not able to to uh, take most jobs, things like that. Am I am I wrong about that? What's the nature of this so-called Muslim tolerance to non-Muslims living in their in their uh, countries? 
Yeah, so I mean, that's a great question. I mean, when when Islam spread forth, you know, from the seventh century out out from Arabian Peninsula and then conquered all these ancient ancient Christian territories in North Africa and and into what is you know now the Holy Land, Syria, those areas. Um, you know, they they did allow Christians and Jews. They're they're known in the Quran as people of the book. I mean, they're they're a protected people uh, as part of of uh, the community. However, uh, if they uh, you know they're they're given the opportunity to convert to Islam, uh, in some cases those were forced conversions, but in most cases, uh, you know, those were not forced. So people of Jew, Jewish Jews and Christians were allowed to live in these occupied territories. But to do so, you were considered really uh, kind of the lower strong or the lower rung, rather, of uh, Islamic society. So you were barely above the status of a slave. Uh, you weren't able to testify in court, for example, because your testimony was automatically considered to be null and void, to, to not be truthful because you weren't uh, a Muslim. Uh, you had to pay, as you mentioned, the tax, the jizra, every year, which was a very humiliating uh, tax. It was very onerous, and the, and the manner in which you had to pay it was very uh, humiliating. You had to present yourself in front of the Islamic tax collector who would actually slap you on the face uh, publicly and then demand your money from you in a very violent kind of, uh, again, humiliating way. Um, and there were other restrictions. You couldn't own weapons. You couldn't build new churches or synagogues. Uh, they allowed current churches and synagogues to exist, but you couldn't repair them. So it was kind of a gradual um, uh, conversion, so to speak. It was through these repressive societal uh, structures, as well as, as uh, you know, again, not being able to build new places and, and to evangelize, that over time and over the centuries, you know, you had this majority Christian Jewish population that became, that did convert and become uh, became Muslim. But at the time of the Crusades, we were just talking about, uh, when you get to the 11th century, there are still sizable pockets of, of indigenous Christians and Jews living in the Holy Land in North Africa. So we were not going to go into too much detail, because I want to do something else, uh, go a different direction with the with your book. But basically, with the Ottoman Empire, uh, uh, you know, you, you see them coming up towards, you know, from uh, Constantinople, and then all the way through North Africa, up and through Spain into France a little bit. Um, the world was about to become a Muslim world, and to say that the that the that the Christians in Europe shouldn't uh, rise up and and fight back, and uh, and besmirch you know the reputation of these Crusaders, who certainly didn't go get a, make a lot of money. They they would they would spend five or six years of their annual income, the kings and stuff, to go fight. And there was and a lot of them didn't come back, and certainly most of them didn't come back. That's not to say that there weren't some Crusaders. Who broke away from the 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 uh, the Pope's instruction and became you know like like with any you know they they weren't following what the church asked to do and they would do they would raid they would persecute Jews at times up in the I think up in Germany right I think you yep in the Rhineland yeah mm -hmm. yeah so I mean there were that there was that but that was not uh, uh, sanctioned by the church and the sacking of Constantinople wasn't either uh, but Correct. now okay so now let's t I want to go boom let's go let's fast forward uh, World War Two. Uh, the Nazi, the whole Nazi thing. Uh, what is the what is the the fake news about that as far as the Catholic Church goes? Yeah, well, the biggest one, right, is that uh, Pope Pius XII and the Church didn't didn't do anything to uh, stop the the Final Solution or the Holocaust. Um, is one one kind of uh, fake news element. Another another one that you. F 
thankfully don't hear too much anymore is that uh, you know that Pius XII was somehow Hitler's pope, meaning that he was uh, sympathetic to the Nazis, uh, and that's why he didn't speak out about the Final Solution and, and these kinds of things. And you know, it's it's over the last uh, let's say twenty years, fifteen years, maybe there's been a significant amount of scholarship on this area in this area that has completely refuted uh, this fake news. And 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 you know, and and to to not get into too detail about the Pius XII, but to just kind of you know talk about it in general is that all of these myths that I talk about in my book, all what I try to do is also point out why these myths exist and why they persist. Uh, and it's very true of Pius XII too in particular that these myths persist because um, – most the people who perpetuate them are those who really have you know are, are enemies of the church. They have an agenda. They have an agenda. They don't want to see the church succeed. They don't want the gospel spread. They don't want people growing in a relationship with Christ. And that's not to say that every person you run into who who you know mentions these myths um, has that as their intent, right? Many of these people you know are just kind of repeating what they've heard. It's, but it's, I'm, I'm prop- more... it's propaganda. They've been indoctrinated exactly. with that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I know Pope Pius talked to us about that. I know, I know when he tried to stand up and really make a stand, uh, you know, the, the, the German response was, let's just go kill a bunch more Jews. You know, it was like he had to be very dexterous and delicate. How many, give us the real, the real story. Uh, um, actually, you've got about two minutes to shorten this down for us. Tell us the real story about that. Yeah, I mean, Pius XII did did what he could, you know, and did actually many, many things for the Jews in the Second World War. I mean, he ordered his nuncios around the world to uh, hide Jews as much as possible, to even issue fake baptismal certificates in certain cases as well, uh, so that in the hopes that they wouldn't be persecuted. And as you briefly mentioned, I mean, he he knew in the back of his mind that if he was to speak out forcefully, uh, that could cause more difficulty for the Jews. And, and he had an exact uh, case of that in Holland, in the Netherlands, where the Dutch bishops spoke out uh, very viciously against Nazi racial policies. In that country alone, there were more Jews that were rounded up and exterminated in Holland than any other Nazi-occupied territory simply because the, the bishops spoke out. But all in all, one Jewish historian has estimated that the Pius XII and the, and the church uh, saved 860,000 Jews, or about 30 percent of those who survived the Holocaust. And and so how how do we get this radical radically different story? I know uh, the Pope himself at his summer home there were thousands of Jews there, I believe, right? And they would, they would, and and, and many of the bishops uh, and cardinals, they would house them in their homes. They would hide them uh, at at the risk of of, of great harm. Um, we did all that we could for them. I, uh, my perception is, but how do we yeah, get that- this false perception? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, the short answer is that it comes from really the uh, the Soviets after the Second World War. They were looking to discredit the church and to uh, uh, discredit, you know, the Western world, obviously, and and uh, they began this propaganda campaign to to smear uh, the papacy, to smear Pius XII in particular, and, and therefore to limit the the power and authority of the church in the world and its influence, really. So they began it, um, and then you know it, it kind of continued itself and pi- it picked itself up in the '90s with, you know dissident Catholics, we'd call them, people who don't believe in the teachings of the church and, and want the church to change or certain her teachings. So they kind of picked up on some of these false propaganda from the Soviets and tried to uh, perpetuate it to, again, get the, get the church to, uh, to, be di- to be diminished in the world and to, and to change her teachings. We're talking with uh, Professor Steve Weidenkopf uh, from Christendom College in Alexandria, Virginia. We'll be right back. We'll talk a story a little bit more about his new book, The Real Story of Catholic History? Is that what it's called again? What is it? I can't read it without yes. my glasses. Okay, this is the Bear, <laughs> Wasn- the Bear Wozniak Adventure. We'll be right back. Saddle up. 
It's time for Long Ride Home cast member Daniel the Boom Barkham to ride herd on us and challenge us to man up. Tolerance. Tolerance can be a good thing or tolerance can be a bad thing. Yep, you heard me right. Tolerance can be a bad thing because tolerance for tolerance sake can be a great form of deception, including self-deception. Instead of making you and me uncomfortable with the truth, I can just decide to be tolerant, or maybe it's actually being cowardly. I clearly remember with considerable delight a little girl who spoke truth to me one cold October night. Seven-year-old trick-or-treater said to me as I opened the door to her knock, Boy, you sure have a big head. Well, she may have been right about that on two counts, a large skull and a swelled ego. We could all use a healthy dose of childlike honesty. Seems to me that in today's world, tolerance is something used in an abusive way. The accusation of being intolerant is used like a bully's fist. Something used to intimidate another into silence because he is for something and others again or again something someone else is for. Just because a man stands for something another person opposes doesn't mean he's intolerant, just means he disagrees. Sometimes a man can hide behind tolerance for the fear of repercussions of speaking what he knows to be true. Yet Jesus was a man of forthrightness, a straight shooter who took risks and spoke truth, in spite of the repercussions. I'd like to be more like that. Shoot, we all want to be liked, but in our untruthful world, we have to come to grips with the fact that being liked is at risk. Besides, I'd rather be respected than liked. A man stands for everything and stands for nothing. Loving folks enough to speak the truth means taking risks. So speak the truth and give the wrong kind of tolerance a swift kick in the rear. This is Daniel the Boone Markham at DanielTheBooneMarkham.com on a journey a few miles this side of heaven. Aloha and welcome back to the Bear Wozniak Adventure. We want to welcome everybody that's been watching live on Facebook. And one thing I've neglected to tell you is uh, you can text us uh, uh, through um, uh, YouTube. If you go, if you click on or watching it via YouTube, you can uh, chat with us and give us some questions. Give a, maybe you can give us a real hard one for for uh, Professor Steve Weidenkopf, who's our guest. Um, let's try to stump him, you guys. Uh, and. Uh, and then, uh, and then we. Uh, but most of you are listening on on EWTN Radio, Global Catholic Radio, whether it's on the ra- antenna-based radio or the app or or Sirius Satellite Radio, or and we also have podcasts. Every single podcast app you can listen to it. But best of all, if you go to bearwastic.com, subscribe to our email. We send you the radio show before it even airs, uh, with fully what you're watching on Facebook Live. If you're watching it that way, you're watching like the raw version. But if you go to uh, if you subscribe, we'll send you out the radio show about a day early, and then you can share it with your friends. Like it's an MP3 kind of version of the show, and that's a great way to evangelize. So I um, want you to consider doing that. But we've got Professor Steve Weidenkopf with us. And your website is a cool website. It's OurCatholicHistory.com, right? Yes, it is. Yeah, and that's uh, that's a website that, that has a program that I developed uh, years ago through Ascension Press. Uh, it's, it's called Epic, A Journey Through Church History. And it's, and it's an a, adult. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, it's, it's an adult faith formation program that covers, in 20 sessions, covers all 2,000 years of, of church history. It's video, right? 
yeah, it's video. So there's DVDs that you that you use along with the study, uh, and there's CD audios that go along with it as well. If people want to just listen to it in the car, kind of thing. And there's a workbook, and and the, the idea is that you gather together in small groups uh, at your parish or your home or wherever, and uh, and kind of walk through the history of our church. And I take our 2,000 years of church history and, and break it into 12 time periods to make it you know but easier for people to digest. And then we just kind of focus on the main events or main people of each of those 12 time periods. I can dig on that so much because I, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a huge undertaking to do something like that. But I don't know if people know that. Uh, but the, you, the idea is, you know, get together with your, get a group together at your church and uh, view this together and dialogue together. And it's easy to be a host uh, because you, you basically give them a turnkey type uh, situation. So it's not just reading it. There's going to be dialogue there and sharing about it. So it's, it's, uh, it's um, you know, pretty cool. So we were talking uh, before we made the break about... Uh, the whole thing with uh, the the fake news that your your book debunks. Uh, we're talking about Pope Pius and what happened uh, uh, in, in in with with the Nazis and how the Church did everything they possibly could to stand in the breach. And then Russia, you know, trying to influence, <laughs> like they did the elections, right? Or yes. they didn't have social media. Uh, how many churches were there in 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 uh, Russia uh, before the communist takeover, and how many? were left how many priests you know all that you know what's yeah, the well, what's the real news about that that's a good question. I mean, I don't. Uh, I, don't uh, I think you stumped me there. I don't have the exact uh, numbers off the top of my head anymore. But uh, you know, at the, at the beginning of the 20th century, there, the church actually had made specific inroads or significant inroads, rather, into Russia in terms of its missionary outreach and, and evangelization efforts. And um, you know, but but as a result of the Second World War, really, and or, I'm sorry, as a result of the Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, uh, they were very anti-religious, and and they they basically closed all of the churches, uh, expelled the bishops, uh, you know, persecuted the clergy and Catholics as a whole, especially, uh, you know, later on in the 20th century, uh, when you have Stalin and his, uh, his, his persecution of, of people in, in Ukraine in particular, which was a very Catholic area and Catholic country. I'm Ukrainian. Yeah. Oh, are you? Yeah. yeah so half Ukrainian, I mean, yeah. There's a, you know, it was a horrible, horrible history uh, of, of persecution against the people in, in that area of the world, and uh, so you know they, uh, the Russians really were able to, you know, kind of put a stop to this this uh, great Catholic outreach and missionary activity there. Um, and there's a fantastic priest who, uh, you know, Father Walter Chiswick, who in the 20th century, right before the Second World War, or actually right during the beginnings of the Second World War, uh, kind of clandestinely went into Russia. To, to spread the gospel and to, and to minister to people in Russia, was uh, found out that he was a Catholic priest uh, by the communists. They arrested him and sent him off to uh, prison in Lubyanka in Moscow at first, and then he was sent to Siberia for a number of, for I think 20 years, where he was uh, in a labor camp and did hard labor there. Uh, and eventually was brought back to the United States under the Kennedy administration. But uh, his book, or he has several books by Ignatius Press. One is With God in Russia, and the other one is He Leadeth Me. It's just a, it's, it's a moving and a story of this just, uh, you know, brilliant, uh, loving, and just uh, courageous man, uh, man of God. Well, I want to say this. People are like, embarrassed to be Catholic or apologetic about it. It's time to be, it's time to stand up and like, dudes, I'm Catholic. That means I've embraced truth, reason, and theology, philosophy, theology, the truth of the Catholic Church's moral teaching. I'm not a kind of Catholic, a menu Catholic where I pick and choose. I'm a Catholic, and you should be proud of it. There's no one 
that stands for truth and justice and love more than a Catholic. Uh, and and so many uh, in the church today, uh, our, our beautiful brothers and sisters in the in the evangelical evangelical world and stuff. If you went through and read there what they teach, so much stuff that would have been refuted a thousand years ago is heresy. There's so much spiritual stew out there in Christianity and then in the New Age movement and all that. Stand up and say, I am Catholic. We're the, we are the place you go to for truth, reason, and, uh, and, and, and the, the, the de- depth of Catholic uh, you know, spirituality. To be Catholic, uh, you look, at, look at Professor Richard Dawkins and Hitchens and all those, I'm not going to say anything, you know, uh, they, they, they think if you're a believer, you're an idiot. Yeah. Um, and, and Bill Maher, you know, loves to talk about, you know, more, more people have been killed by Christians in, in wars than any other, any other thing. And, uh, and I know the, the University of Hawaii about four years ago had this study. I don't know if you heard about it, but they said in the history of Christian wars, I think they said about 2 million, maybe less than 2 million were killed in the Crusades or whatever. But Dawkins goes under a- atheists. Why would they kill anybody be- just because they're atheists? You look at the communist regimes, the atheistic regimes, they, the University of Hawaii says over 200 million, and that's just in the last, you know, 100 years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's, that's one of the myths that I address in the book in particular, you know, this whole, and it's because it's a standard common myth, right, that you hear from people, especially atheists, that, uh, you know, religion in general, sometimes they make it specific to Christians or to the Catholic Church in particular, you know, is responsible for more wars and more death than any other in the history of the world. And that's, I mean, that's just, it's, it's, it's so, so false, frankly, on his head to be laughable if it wasn't so widely believed. Um, you know, all you have to do, as you mentioned, is look at the 20th century and look at what the political movements of, you know, communism, fascism, and national socialism brought to the world. Uh, you know, hundreds of millions of people killed in that century alone, in less than 100 years, really, um, you know, because of these political ideologies, uh, which had nothing to do with the religious faith and had nothing to do with the Catholic Church. Indeed, those uh, those political ideologies and movements persecuted the Catholic faith and Catholic Church. You know, all of them did. So uh, that's just a, another another kind of, you know, fake news element that, that's become so widely believed that, that people just kind of unthinkingly accept it. Um, but you have to, if you're challenged by that, you have to kind of, you know, turn that back uh, to the person who brings it to you and say, you know, say, well, what about what happened in the 20th century? How do, how do we explain that? Yeah, and, and, and we're talking with Professor Steve Weidenkopf, uh, graduate professor of church history, <laughs> excuse me, church history at Christendom College. And I just dig on that. I, I think I got to meet a, a, a teacher or maybe it was one of the dean or someone at uh, the Napa Institute, you know, he goes, I'm from Christendom College. Go, what? I wanted to, you know, like bow and genuflect. <laughs> you know, I'd really dig on that school. I love Warren uh, Carroll. I love his books. They're just so great. And we started off this conversation talking about Cardinal Newman saying that to, to know history is to cease to be Protestant. You know, because, uh, this morning in my Catholic catechism, I read the Didache. You know, and you go back through the early church fathers and uh, you see, I mean, what blew my mind is when I read Justin Martyr's uh, a statement about the epiclesis. I don't know when that was. It was about it was in the second century. Uh, yeah, yeah second it was century. early second century. Yeah. What, what, when I read that, Steve, I realized as a kid I heard that at mass. Yeah. The primitive, roaring, young lion of the Catholic Church of the Church was a Catholic Church. Oh yeah. You know. Yeah. And so how can you not? How can you not? You know, embrace that. Give us one more debunking. We got about a minute for you to do it. 
Uh, well, you know, I, let's talk about briefly just my favorite myth uh, that I wrote into the book and, and or that I wrote about in the book, and that's uh, the myth that Marie Antoinette was a selfish and decadent, you know, Catholic queen mm-hmm. who callously told her subjects to uh, eat cake, and uh, that's so false. Um, it's actually the opposite of what she did. In, in real life, Marie Antoinette was very concerned about the life of her people in France uh, and during their their financial crisis and famine, and she actually established. Uh, you know, soup kitchens and handed out food to the people in Paris so that they they could, uh, uh, you know, receive food and and not starve. Um, and so that that whole let them eat cake was was propaganda that was created by anti uh, monarchy forces as well as anti Catholic forces uh, who were in favor of the revolution uh, to discredit her and to discredit the church. And it's it's a commonly accepted thing today that's completely false. The revolution that killed thousands of Catholics and yes. priests and yes. and you know and uh, the, the whole the whole the, the thing it let them eat cake was first brought out in a book that was published before she even came to France I think isn't that right yeah, exactly. And, and you know, most historians have attributed the, the quote to Maria Teresa of Spain, who was the first uh, wife of Louis XIV, who, mm. who died 70 years before Marie Antoinette okay. even lived. So, yeah. You guys, <laughs> so, I'm, I'm just so upset. We got to go, Steve. So ourcatholichistory.com is where you find Professor Steve Weidenkopf. Okay, and this is Bear Wozniak with the Bear Wozniak Adventure. Go check out our website, bearwozniak.com, and uh, you can find all kinds of gear there and uh, books and even motorcycle pins and patches from our TV show, Long Ride Home. Until uh, next week, we uh, look forward to seeing you. This is Bear Wozniak. Viva Cristo Rey! You've been listening to the Bear Wozniak Adventure. Go to bearwozniak.com to get your free audio and other exciting content. Plus, you can pick up the Long Ride Home 10-episode DVD set, autographed copies of Bear's books, Long Ride Home shirts, tanks, coffee cups, and even motorcycle pins and patches. And find out how guys can sign up for Bear's Man Cave online Facebook group, all at bearwozniak.com.